0: Welcome to the Beeson Podcast coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University. Now your hosts, Doug Sweeney and Kristen Padilla. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast. I am your host, Doug Sweeney, here with my co-host, Kristen Padilla. And today we continue our series On the work of God among Beeson's African American members, which we are featuring on the podcast throughout the month of February. Kristen will introduce today's guest in just a moment, but before she does, let me tell you that today, Tuesday, February 9, and next week on Tuesday, February 16, we are celebrating our African American Ministry Emphasis Month in chapel. Today, February 9, the Reverend Thomas Wilder, pastor of the Bethel Baptist Church here in Collegeville in Birmingham and a Beeson D. Min student will preach in chapel. Then on February 16, the Reverend Dr. Thomas Beavers, senior pastor of the New Rising Star Missionary Baptist Church in the East Lake community in Birmingham, a two-time Beeson alumnus will preach in chapel. You can listen to their sermons and participate in our Beeson Chapel services online. At 11 a.m. Central Time each Tuesday at besundivinity.com/slash live. If you're listening to this podcast after the chapel days have passed, you can find the sermons at besundivinity.com/slash videos. Now, Kristen, would you please introduce today's special guest?
1: Thanks, Doug. We are glad to have Reverend Cameron Thomas with us on the show today. Cam is Senior Pastor of Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church in Cropwell. He is the Director of Diversity, Enrichment, and Relations at Stanford University and, of course, is a Beeson alumnus. Um, He is married to Tara, and we are so glad you are on the show today, Cam. So, welcome.
2: Thank you so much, Kristen and Dean Sweeney, for this opportunity to share together. Looking forward to our conversation.
1: We are, too. And I just gave a very simple, short bio of you. So why don't you uh, tell us more about yourself, Cam? Um, Where are you from? Anything about your faith journey and your family?
2: Uh, No, you know, I think, Kristen, what you said was typically enough for an introduction. But I'll say this. I'm from a small town in Alabama. Called Goodwater, Alabama. Uh, there were probably about 1,200 people there. Thirteen stop signs, one red light—that kind of situation. And I cannot remember a time where I was not a person uh, of faith in in any capacity. The church record shows that I was baptized at two and a half years old. That's still, you know, debatable and questionable for a lot of people concerning, you know, the authenticity or sincerity of it. But I must say that. I see it as the beginning of what it is that God uh, has has led me to at even in this point in my life. I started, I was a licensed preacher at the tender age of 14, which is crazy to think about now that it's almost been uh, 15 years since that uh, December evening at, at my small Baptist church uh, when people were gathered in our small sanctuary in order to hear what thus saith the Lord uh, from a preacher at such, um, such a young age. And, and so from there, uh, I've been on a church staff since I was 16 years, 16 years old. And with that, it's uh, it's been an amazing experience um, to say that I would have envisioned myself um, being a bi-vocational pastor, or even um, serving as a pastor at this age, probably was not on my radar of possibility. Even uh, that uh, that cool, brisk uh, December night, there my initial sermon. But I am grateful for the journey the Lord has brought me up, even up to this point. Um, and with that, I've served as youth minister. And transition to my um, current position as a pastor of the Mount Zion Baptist Church in uh, Cropwell, Alabama, which is right outside of Pell City. Been there, be eight years this upcoming March, and and not only my church work, but also denominational affiliation. Uh, our church is a part of the Alabama State Missionary Baptist Convention, and with that association, we have an opportunity to serve within our networks of church, and so opportunities have been extended to me as well in that capacity with serving as one of the youngest vice presidents in our state convention. And so that has been a very unique opportunity to be a part of the shaping and the formation of what it is that our denominational work looks like. Um, and so it's, it's been an enchanting journey. I think that it's been one that has been eye-opening to the realities of God's powers and provision being made evident in my life, but also it's been a grace-filled journey. And I'm grateful for how God um, has orchestrated us to this place and point. But also along that route, I uh, had a chance to experience an amazing uh, educational journey here at Sanford University and there at Eastern Divinity School specifically. So, no, it's it's been great.
0: Reverend Thomas, if I could draw you out just a little bit more about your time at Mount Zion and your service in the Missionary Baptist Church in general, I'd love to. Because I think I know... You were the youngest pastor in the history of your church, Mount Zion. You've already told us you were baptized. I mean, at least for a Baptist, that's a very young age to be baptized. And you became a denominational leader at a young age. I think you started pastoring that congregation while you were still a student even. Is that right? At Stanford. So so what's that like? Tell us about that (laughs) and tell us about even just the spiritual... Uh, struggle of somebody who who's always feeling young but is being called into ministry and is trying to be faithful uh, at a young age?
2: I'll say this, uh, Dean Sweeney, thank you for, for allowing me to kind of draw that out um, a little bit. It has been truly an amazing experience to see how, how God has opened doors and opportunities that somewhat have seemed to um, in comparison to others, been on kind of fast forward. But I stand in awe of this. But I also have a deep appreciation for history. So with this, it allows me to to work and kind of. Really what I believe is an area that the Lord has gifted me with in taking and assessing what history is it that we have received, denominationally as well as our church. When I was 20 years old and was called to Mount Zion, uh, I left the previous church I was serving as youth minister. I tell the church all the time I left kicking and screaming and crying. And it wasn't because I was not excited about the opportunity uh, to serve at Mount Zion, but uh, there was just so much investment that had been made, commitments as well as investments personally in me as a as a minister, but also that which we were doing in in the specific area of ministry that we were serving, and so it's really been a journey uh, that has has called out for um, has been a call to take the words of Joshua. I'll never forget my first sermon when I preached after accepting the call to Mount Zion. We. We had the text of Joshua chapter one, and we use a few of the verses uh, where the Lord is calling Joshua to be courageous and very courageous. You know, Moses, my servant is dead. Uh, Joshua, arise and go over this Jordan. so I've used for the sermonic topic, uh, the interrogative, can this be done? Uh, in looking at this this feat of having the youngest pastor in history, uh, a church that um, at that point had just uh, recently split. And we had kind of just an unclear future as with the youngest pastor, with the congregation dynamics and demographics that had shifted as a whole. And so all of us were coming to this place and point where we were encountering uh, and inquiring, God, can this be done? We, we're bringing ourselves, you know, we've got young Cameron, you know, you being uh, typified there as Joshua, the people who, who have a history and a heritage that they have received and brought about, but yet there's this amazing opportunity that is, is upon them. And so in seeing it in light of that, it, it really has helped shape my, my kind of pastoral uh, aspiration and even uh, open opportunities for denominational service as well. Because um, much of the chances and opportunities that I receive has been kind of connected to being present. And I think many times as people look at service in the church, look at uh, their sufficiency uh, or even their own insufficiencies, it's always a question of can this be done, but but truly the question is, are we willing and available? I think of when Jesus turned turned that that small lunch from the uh, from the young lad. You know, the disciples brought him to Jesus, and uh, one of the gospels says it this way: and there was a boy who was here. He wasn't over there, but he was here. Now, what he had probably was not the best that we needed, but what he had was sufficient. You know, in in that case, in putting it in in the Lord's hand, and so I think that that is something that has been an aspiration of my own personal ministry and and service and work is to be present and and that is something that that is helped I think, open doors, but also um, been an opportunity to serve serve, serve the kingdom of God.
1: Cam, after you graduated Sanford, you came to Beeson Divinity School, and you continued serving as pastor um, while you were in seminary. So what led you to Beeson? And I'd love to hear about your experience as someone who is serving in full-time ministry while receiving theological education. There are many students who come and they're not serving as a pastor yet, but you came in with that pastoral experience. So maybe how did that help you as you were a student at seminary? And then how were your theological studies aiding you um, as you were ministering week by week to your congregation?
2: No, Chris, I think that's a, that's a great question. I knew that I was called to Beeson when I knew that I was called to Mount Zion. And so I was in between Beeson and another seminary as far as like entertaining the idea to go and explore and see which program was fitting. But once I knew that God had called me to Mount Zion and Cropwell, then I knew, well, Lord, Beeson has to be it because, you know, I wanted an incarnational experience, um, for my theological training, so wanting to be in person as much as possible um, respectfully. And so I was like, well, well, Beeson was the place. And I also wanted to study under uh, Dr. Smith in preaching. I mean, that's, you know, a no brainer there for me, it was anyway. And so, with that, I must say that, to be honest, I was only able to survive seminary because I was involved in the local church. And I know that's not the experience for others or even for many, or as Dr. James Earl Massey would say, and he was talking about preaching, but talking about this of joy that comes along with, with this. But to be able to have a you know, entrenched in theological exploration, but also having uh, an ecclesial experience in close proximity uh, was able, was, was an opportunity for me to be able to to put boots on the ground concerning the experience of, of things that theologians uh, and biblical scholars and homileticians respectfully and church historians, they sometimes can can become so siloed in their experience that they forget that we are preaching and learning about a grace that has to be applied to real life. And so seminary helped me satisfy my intellectual appetite and the local church allowed me to satisfy my church life, ecclesial affinity. Uh, And really I have not found a better marriage than having one foot in academia and also one foot in, in the local church. And I think that is something that I did not go into decent thinking would be one of the greatest takeaways that I have. So I would encourage anyone who is looking for a seminary experience, especially if it's possible, if you come to the seminary already with an established uh, position at a local church, find a way that you can serve. Uh, Because it's, it's, it's no good for us to merely think about these, these, um, these topics, um, you know, across the board without recognizing that even uh, exploring God's truth in God's word, it also must be connected to lived experience of real, li- of, li- of, of, of real people, excuse me, who, who have an opportunity and chance to, to not just simply be um, captivated by your theological, you know, hermeneutical lens, but also are able to see that the triune God uh, is concerned and, and, And also desires to be experienced by by God's people and so I think that that was something that that helped keep my sanity Uh, during my time at Beeson while serving at the church we ended up having a a kind of a legal issue between uh, the administration at the church and 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 an employee at that time so during my I think it was my second year at Beeson I was I was going from Dr. House's uh, Isaiah, Hebrew three class, so everybody who's experienced that knows this, going to his class at eight, and then by the afternoon prepared to stand before a judge in this case that, that we had going on. So it helped my sanity, but it also allowed me to be able to have a way of, of escaping as well, even, as I said, it's both of these appetites, not necessarily competing, uh, but they were definitely able to complement uh, compliment each other respectfully, so, so yeah. Mm.
0: Pastor Thomas, you know that we talk a lot at Beeson about raising up pastors who are good preachers. And I know that you have a marvelous reputation as a preacher yourself. (coughs) Maybe more importantly, so I'm not flattering you here, I know that you're a very serious student of preaching and the history of preaching. And that's all just to set up for the next question I wanted to ask you, which is, why do you care so much about the study of preaching and the history of preaching? And who would be some figures in the history of preaching who've helped you to become a better preacher?
2: Uh, preaching for me has always been essential to my personal as well as uh, spiritual development as a whole. My grandmother and, and anyone from our church would tell, uh, tell the story of when I was younger uh, you know, six, seven, eight years old. Uh, there was this uh, specific—you know—some people call it the sacred space in this, uh at, at our church outside of the sanctuary, where theological education took place, even in this non-traditional sense, and that would be in what's called the pastor study. And so, as a young lad, I am spending time before service, in between service, in the pastor ser- study, and this is the place where. Theological education, I mean, we're talking about doctrine, we're talking about scriptures, we're talking about uh, pastoral care, how, how to connect with parishioners, um, and all of this would take place in the pastor's study. And then to see my pastor, who had no formal theological education, hear him stand and proclaim the liberating uh, message of Jesus Christ. Uh, it it was transformed. and so i was mesmerized by specifically for my tradition black preaching as, as a whole and so then as i began to grow and develop in in preaching it was something that i didn't want to just see it performed i had a desire to see what are the mechanics behind what makes a preacher this way or or that way how how is it that they develop especially in the black church tradition kind of how did he find the sweet hoot, the sound that's able, you know, to, to resonate with the congregation? And yet it's not just simply emotionalism, but it is tailored as well as coupled very laser precise with the aim and aspiration of the message. Like how is how is this developed as as a whole? And then when I was introduced to Dr. Robert Smith. Uh, at the E.K. Bailey uh, Preaching Conference. I had two preachers from my hometown, Goodwater, Alabama, connected with me. And they said, if you want to take preaching seriously, we want you to go with us to the E.K. Bailey Preaching Conference. I was 16 years old at my first E.K. Bailey Preaching Conference, and I received an award for being the youngest attended. At the conference, Brian Carter brought me down and gave me these books, these, these preaching books as, as a whole. And so being able to hear the likes of Dr. A. Lewis Patterson, uh, as well as Dr. Robert Smith, Dr. James R. Massey, Dr. Joel Gregory, uh, these were these were people that I was introduced to, and I was like, what is it that they are doing? How is it that they are preaching using the same Bible that I have? And it's like, it's almost as if they have uh, another key that I don't even know can unlock these treasures that are right here, right here before us. And so preaching has been something that has, has was the saving grace for me that, that I uh, experienced and kind of knew, came to know of who Jesus was. It wasn't necessarily through Uh, an experience of just simply uh, some traumatic experience, but it was through the constant hearing of the preaching of Jesus Christ. And so with that, it just onboarded me to wanting to think about what it is that preaching what it is that preaching looked like, because in hearing names like Joel Gregory and Juan Worsby, I not only had an appreciation for black preaching, but I also see that powerful preaching is not limited to a singular ethnic or, you know, race as, as a whole. Powerful preaching is just powerful preaching. And so being a Beeson prepared me, uh, I would say, in a manner and capacity to engage not only the best of Brian Chapel not only the best of you know uh the necessary components of Eugene Lowry's homiletical plot. But I still was able to hold in tandem with that, the rich tradition that I received in my black upbringing and being able to marry those together. Like I never knew that I could do, you know, first person expository preaching sermon uh, until I heard Hatton Robinson do it. And I was like, this is all of the necessary components of what uh, could black preaching looked like. But also it has a unique flavor that I had never been introduced to. And so that is where I was onboarded with an amazing experience to explore deeper depths about preaching. If there were some names that I would make note of that probably would be great examples outside of simply, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. and probably Gardner, Gardner Taylor, I would have to recommend he's a contemporary of King and Taylor, as well as he's in New York, pastor by the name uh, William Augustus Jones, who has lectured before at Beeson, as well as E.K. Bailey. E.K. Bailey receives uh, a lot of attention in in some sects, but there are still people who do not know the amazing uh, contribution that he has made to, to preaching. He has, I call it a little homiletical book, 10 uh, Reasons for Expository Preaching. That is foundational for anyone who is trying to figure out expository preaching. But I would also add to that list, our Alabama State Missionary Baptist Convention current president, uh, he's a manuscript preacher, a pastor by the name of Melvin Owens, who's a bivocational bi- pastor preacher, but he pre- and he preaches with a manuscript. And the beautiful thing about his preaching is, is that he's able to make the words come off of the page. And so much so that it's something that allows for uh, it's not just something to be read because he's a wordsmith, uh, part excellent, but he is able to to be conversational even in him reading his his manuscript. So, so with that, it's a wide kind of breadth of of, of you know varying varying preaching methods, but the you know complete perspective of, of preaching and its possibilities. So, so yeah
1: so helpful uh, and helps lead me into the next question that I wanted to ask you. You mentioned the rich tradition of the African-American preaching. Um, And as Doug has already said, we're in the middle of our African-American Ministry Emphasis Month at Beeson. So I would love for you to talk more about the rich tradition of the African-American church. Uh, Preaching is a part of that, but it's not the only thing. And um, I believe uh, you're also a part of the National Baptist Convention. And so I I wonder if you can share with our listeners uh, the ways in which the African-American church is a gift to the church at large, and how Christians who are not African-American can benefit from the African-American church.
2: One of the greatest opportunities, I think, for seminaries, uh, Beeson uh, alike, is, is to provide an opportunity for uh, persons to explore, explore the rich tradition of, as Esau Macaulay uh, calls it in his Reading Wild Black book which provides verbiage and vocabulary, I think, necessary to kind of express what it is that I'm talking in, in looking at the rich heritage of the black ecclesial tradition. First off, if we're going to be honest um, about it, it, the black ecclesial tradition or the black church, if we want to be succinct in calling it that, is not monolithic. And so with that, I think many times um, it has received a negative connotation because Probably what has been perceived about the black church probably is not true to the heart of the black church. Uh, it, it's so important for us to recognize one of the great, great reasons that we even have the black church, because the black church is a place where identity as well as dignity is was was formulated as well as expressed for those former in, well enslaved and even former enslaved persons with the visible institutional church and also with the invisible uh, church, the hush harbors and, and the like, where even though enslaved person, this is dating back to slavery, and, and I'll try to walk it up contemporary. Even when the degradation was taking place, the dehumanization uh, was being experienced by enslaved persons. There still was a dignity that was able to be imputed to them uh, concerning that, listen, as as we read Scripture, we must know that there is more to Scripture than just simply slaves obey your master. There is more to us being this N-word and, you know, um, scum of the earth this and scum of the earth that but there's this dignity to where out of the out of this experience out of this kind of trajectory of hopefulness we have vocabulary that is that is pronounced and proclaimed that i got shoes you got shoes all of god's children got shoes and so then when we move from kind of this institutional infrastructure that is built in the formation of uh, black denominations in, in their origins we move from being this or that in 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 society and in the social standings. And then when we come into the church, we move from just boy or girl here, but we move to brother and we move to sister. So so here's a place where there's affirmation and dignity that is is expressed as well as affirmed. Because we are seeing ourselves as God sees us. And so with that, I think that what has had what has happened and we you know, we see this in looking at Black History Month and looking at the civil rights movement, we see the intricately woven uh, trajectory of the black church and the civil rights movement, with all that comes with uh, with that respectfully, but we see that the mass meetings where people were organized and galvanized in order to be prepared for the sit-ins, to be prepared for the marches, they were church services. I mean, they were singing songs, preachers were preaching, uh, and they were being housed and held in churches. So there was this sanctified dignity that is given to the movement because it has such rich Christian, Christian foundation. And it's not an aspiration to be attached to just singularly a social movement. It is something that people saw that they deserve, not just simply because they were Americans, but because they were people of God. And and these people were image bearers of God, and they desired to see that what they experienced in their own ecclesial activity, ecclesial experience, was was dignity, that they were able to walk around even as dogs were set on them, as well as even fire hoses, you know, those extreme scenarios and situations and the Jim Crow uh, poll taxes, all those kind of things. They were able to see these things are worth fighting for Because Jesus makes a difference. And so in that, my boyhood pastor would conclude every sermon. And he had a way of, as Dr. Swift would call it, finding his highway to Jesus uh, in being able to say that that Jesus died and he also rose early. You know, the black preacher would, would proclaim early Sunday morning. And then he would go into this other mantra where he says, since he got up, you can get up. You know, you can get up out of poverty, you can get up out of of abuse. And so it's not only an external facing, but it also was empowerment for, for the black community as well. Like the black church was foundational for property value in Black communities. Because the Black churches more than likely were the biggest edifices. And their construction had an impact on not only the salvation of the people, but also the economic impact. Schools were founded by the Black church when when there were no places where we could be accepted. When when an opportunity for a person like me to attend Sanford University was not um, not afforded to me, the Black church founded institutions like Selma University and, and Talladega College, HBC Historically Black colleges and universities, respectfully, um, because um, in the words of uh, my grandmother, you know, uh, Jesus will make a way out of no way. So as a result of there not being an opportunity in a way, Jesus offers uh, this opportunity and chance for us to be able to to do such. And, you know, to be at Beeson, at Beeson, I was able to see God's elongated work in history over time through theological development uh, as a whole, but I still also brought with me my own experience and the tradition that was handed to me by my family and my local church. So it was it was great for me to read confessions. It was great for me to, you know, uh, throw around Kierkegaard and throw around, you know, uh, Russian Bush and Calvin and Luther phenomenal people. But I'm still convinced uh, some of the best theologians were you know, were back in my you know, a Boyhood Church, my Sunday school teacher, you know, who who, if nothing else were able to show me that even in the midst of a world that probably has had a negative connotation or even devaluing uh, of my experience, sometimes as, as perceived in the world, there is a God who sits high and looks low. And he's concerned too, even about the little nappy-headed boy from Goodwater. So that's, you know, that's kind of the trajectory of uh, and, it, and it's not a separatist, it's not a uh, one better than the other, but, but no, Jesus cares about, about you you as well.
0: Amen. And, and while we got you talking a little bit about the empowerment of the black community, can we get you to say a little bit about the work that you're doing here at Sanford these days in the Office of Diversity? We mentioned at the top of the show that you serve as a bivocational minister. Yeah. So in addition to pastoring. You're one of our colleagues here at Sanford University. You serve as Director of Diversity, Enrichment, and Relations through the Office of the Diversity at Sanford. And that's a relatively new thing for you. So can yeah. you can you tell us what it is you do, what it is you're excited about doing through the Office of Diversity, yeah. and how you see that being used by the Lord uh, to encourage especially minority students here at Sanford? Yeah,
2: no, Dean Tweeney, I think that That's a a great chance for me to share. I think, as I stated, you know, having one foot in the local church and having one foot in kind of academia, uh, higher education institution, as as it has manifested uh, since my time at Beesom, has been an amazing, amazing chance to convey and connect for students, as well as for some of our faculty and staff and administrators, some gaps that may have been perceived through my experience as an undergraduate and even a graduate student as well. Here in our Office of Diversity and Cultural Initiatives, it is, it is paramount for us to be explicit with us being at an institution like Sanford University that that many times the topics of diversity, topics of inclusion and equity and those kind of things, they kind of get um, swept all together in looking at kind of a social agenda, that kind of thing, as, as being something that, uh, oh, this is something that, you know, state institutions state institutions uh, should do or others, you know, should, should engage in. But uh, here at Sanford, in our office, it, it has been an amazing opportunity to display and connect uh, some dots uh, with our on-campus um, students, faculty and staff, but also even our external partners. What does it look like for a Christian institution uh, to have a kingdom mindset? concerning the topic of diversity. And and so this is something that I get a chance to share with with parents who are visiting and and prospective students that for us, diversity is not a cultural thing. It's not a social uh, agenda or ticket item or box to check, but we actually see this in living out the Great Commission, but also our mission as a university and so in doing that some of the amazing things that we have coming up are geared towards not just simply providing educational opportunities for our students uh, and faculty and staff to learn and to grow but also to enhance what it is that we're doing on on our campus with respects to making sure that as we continue to work towards representing even on our campus and our student demographics and our faculty and staff respectfully able to see that these things reflect uh, God's vision concerning what what this work should should look like and with that our our office uh, is participating uh, in in trainings for all of our faculty search uh, committees and looking at ways that we can enhance our engagement with external partners uh, we we began to forge conversations. We had an amazing conversation with um, uh, Dr. Douglas Webster, who participated in his faculty there at Beeson, participated with us in, um, in talking about what does justice look like. And so being able to uh, host conversations as well as invite our community to not only affirm for our students of colors or our non-majority students that not only does God see you, but also St. University sees you and we value you. You have a presence here, but also to expand the interaction, uh, the knowledge of our majority students who, who are who we have the responsibility of shaping and preparing them to engage in a global world. But even in their engagement, they need to recognize and be able to see that every decision that they make whether that is as a healthcare provider, is that as a chemist in the lab, is that as a preacher, that as a lawyer, that you have a responsibility to share uh, in every aspect uh, the light of Jesus Christ wherever you are. And if that is serving in an urban setting, if that is serving in a C-suite capacity, that, that you too have a responsibility to kind of live out what Jesus says uh, when he proclaims uh, in Luke chapter 4, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he begins to make this proclamation of what he's coming to do and upend and, and, and uproot these systems that have an impact, that have had ricochet impacts that probably were not, we could not see clearly. Concerning their uh, long-term impact because the decision was made and, and intent is clouded. You know this as a historian, intent sometimes become clouded, but despite intent, it's had an impact. And how it is that we respond to that, how it is that we cultivate a community that is that, it, that better embodies uh, the witness of Jesus Christ. That's that's the most exciting thing about our work. And I must say this, uh, I'm able to have this kind of hermeneutic, this lens appropriate because of my time uh, at Beeson. So I'm most, I'm most appreciative of that.
1: Cam, we always like to end these shows by asking you what God is doing in your life personally and teaching you these days you've already have pointed us to Jesus multiple times no. during this conversation into the Bible. I mean, you are a preacher after all, but <laughs> we'd love to just end by, uh, hearing a personal word. What, what is God doing in your life these days?
2: Um, well, Kristen and Dean Sweeney, thanks so much for, for this opportunity and, and the chance to reflect not only my time at Beeson, uh, but also my work as, as a pastor. Right now we're in 2021, and we got you know uh, African American you know ministry emphasis uh, month that's taking place here at Beeson, and, and you know I really think about those pastors who are trying to figure out in what capacity and in, in what ways and in what areas can I really be used by God in this time. This is not the pandemic, you know, that whole, you know, this whole scenario that we're living in. My uh, Isaiah exegesis class uh, with Dr. House and, you know, my pastoral epistles with Dr. Padilla, they did not prepare me for this. I'm sorry. They, they did not. But... What they did prepare me for was the opportunity to feel comfortable to take myself fully, all that I have, all that I hope to be, and be able to rest in knowing that that God is not just simply fragile because of what's taking place, but, but that God is faithful, and I and I pray. That even in the midst of this roller coaster ride of an experience, you know, and it may be trying to engage your church with talking about race in America, or maybe trying to forge your um, congregation to recognizing that the future may look different, and so we must tread lightly to things that we have considered sacred because there, we may no longer have any space for them. That even out of all of that that's going on that we can still put our trust in God and, and still lean on the witness of the resurrected Jesus. And in that, yielding ourselves uh, to, to the witness of, of trusting that, um, that, that God will preserve us, God will protect us. And I hope through this conversation, even for me starting at two and a half years old and am where I am now, that it's, it's been a God story. It's, it's a God thing. And I pray that others, too, will get to the place and point where we will look at promotions and opportunities, not simply as a burden, but as an opportunity to say, God, how can you use me here? And I and I want to be available to do that. I hope that others too will be encouraged to know that God is still working, even, even in twenty twenty one and in our work, whether that's a black pastor in rural Alabama or you know, a white pastor in urban, you know, I don't know, Huntsville or whatnot. You know, that, that God God is at work. Even when you feel isolated, God, God is at work. And guess what? He's using men and women every single day. And what a blessing that is.
0: It certainly is. Thank you, Pastor Thomas for ending this interview on such an encouraging note. Listeners, you have been listening to the Reverend Cameron Thomas, Senior Pastor of Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church in Cropwell, Alabama, and Director of Diversity, Enrichment, and Relations here at Sanford University. We are very proud to say he is an alumnus of Beeson Divinity School, and we are grateful to him for giving us some time today. Thank you very much for tuning in. Uh, We'll meet with you again next week, and we say goodbye for now.